Uh, first, a big thank you to Peter Freithauser for inviting us to have this discussion and to share it with the Alternate Currents blog. I'm Annika Johnson, Associate Curator of Native American Art at the Joslin Art Museum. And I'm speaking today with Marissa Cummings, who has generously offered to share with us a bit about her creative practice and her work with food sovereignty. Uh, Marissa, I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay. Um, so I'll start with the introduction in, in my language. Um, so, Ambate Uda, Wangle, Dapite Uda, Umahai Jaje, Wilitete, Miakanda, Tisindawa Ugli, Wakhe Jaje, Wilitete, Marissa Cummings. Um, so what I just told you in my language is I just said it's a, it's a really good day. Thank you for being here. Um, my Omaha name is uh, Mia Kanda, and my English name is Marissa Cummings, as, as you stated earlier. So um, a lot of times when I, when I do an introduction, just to feed into this a little bit, um, there's two very different dichotomies, right? There's a traditional version of who I am and my responsibilities in terms of kinship, clanship, um, and even in terms of um, what it means to be a tribal member. And then there's this idea of um, being um, legitimate, I guess is the word I would use within Western society or um, mainstream American society. And that would include obviously your name, um, where you're from, which I'm from Sioux City, Iowa. I'm um, a member of the um, Omaha or Omaha tribe. Um, I belong to the Buffalo Tail Clan of the Sky People. And I have my undergraduate degree from the University of Iowa in American Studies um, with a certificate in American Indian Native Studies. And my graduate work right now, um, which I'll graduate this May, is in the uh, Master's in Tribal Administration and Governance Program, which is a nation building program at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And I work at the University of South Dakota in student, Native Student Services specifically. So I work with um, Native students on a daily basis. And um, that's I guess, is, is that a good, inter good introduction for you? <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you know, to give everybody a little context, uh, Marissa and I first met in South Sioux City um, at a Quilters Guild meeting at Nebraska Indian Community College, and they were hosting a ribbon skirt making workshop, generously invited me to, to come down and just hang out. And Marissa, you showed us a few examples of your floral ribbon work or applique skirts um, and shared about, a bit about your journey in learning this creative practice, uh, especially as it relates to an Omaha way or an Omaha tradition. So for those of us, I think a lot of people might not know what applique ribbon work is. Um, can you talk about this a little bit and how you went about learning this creative practice? Right. So first of all, I'm, um, as we've discussed before, I'm not an expert. I don't um, qualify myself as an expert um, in ribbon work or much of anything else in life. <laughs> I think life is a journey and we're all constantly learning. Um, but I, um, I think I started sewing just in general, um, Omaha specific, uh, probably around 2008. Um, my you know, my children danced when I was very young. I danced in the, the powwow arena. Um, but I realized that I wanted to, when we re-entered the circle, um, after we came out of mourning when my mother and father passed away, I wanted to make sure that we were very knowledgeable about our Omaha-specific uh, culture traditions within the circle. 
And um, within traditional styles of women's dance, we wear um, the traditional clothing of our ancestors, which includes when women are dressed up, they wear their applique. And the traditional way of, of doing the applique cut and fold technique um, with silk ribbons is not one that I, I practice. Um, one, the silk ribbons are incredibly expensive. Sometimes you can still buy them on Etsy or sites like that, um, mm -hmm. where people found these old French ribbons in their attic, which is amazing and beautiful. Um, yeah. But uh, the technique that I use is more of a modern technique where we use um, like a bonding agent in the back and you cut out the um, design and then sew it with a zigzag stitch and um, these floral um, designs are very um, very personal to people um, from my understanding I mean maybe, maybe there's some people that they aren't but um, when a woman makes a design she um, essentially owns that design um, that design could be her family design it could be a clan design it could be a design that's very special or intentional for that specific person wearing it um, the colors that are incorporated <clears throat> often also have meaning. And so um, it's, there's just a lot, of, um, a lot of elaborate work that goes into it. So um, this ribbon work is worn on panels in the skirt. So usually a front panel and then a panel that goes around. Um, it, was, it was traditionally done on broadcloth material, which is like a, um, a wool trade cloth. And um, also done on blankets that were actually essentially skirts were uh, first blankets that were wrapped around and tied with a um, finger woven belt. And then later came to be skirts worn just as skirts with uh, cotton tops or silk tops. And then um, blankets that were worn. And usually when a woman's wearing a blanket, it, it is a very special occasion. For Omaha specific ribbon work, um, it's very common to see a gold or a silver, usually gold, um, military fringe is what they call it, around the, um, the bottom of the skirt or the blanket. I've sometimes seen it at the top too. So yeah, that's, that's kind of um, in a nutshell what ribbon work is. And, and ribbon work was really worn by most of the woodland tribes. Um, although the Omaha people are currently in the, um, what they call the, the um, prairie, <laughs> I guess this is new to me, but um, we're essentially woodland people and we're new to the prairie. We lived in the woodlands in the Great Lakes area for hundreds of years before migrating down the Missouri River. So, um, you know, it's, it's very common for many Great Lakes tribes to have, or woodlands tribes to have a version of uh, ribbon work. And sometimes they look very, very familiar or similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of what you just shared and you've talked about with me previously is about knowledge and how you learn this practice, which seems like it's partially a very personal journey in a ways, in a lot of ways you're self-taught, um, but you're also um, learning from, you know, generations of sewing work and different artistic traditions. Can you talk a little bit about this journey and just learning and how um, knowledge is shared as it relates to sewing and ribbon work? Yeah, so um, for me, I had to ask a lot of questions and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, um, you know, this idea um, or reality of colonization and the mass dispossession of indigenous people, Omaha people from our land. Um, to create a settler state, right? And to create um, Nebraska, 
the Omaha people had to sign a treaty in 1854 in order for Nebraska to even be established as a, as a state in order for us to really um, address the, the learning we have to Obama and the idea of lost knowledge within families and communities. And so um, we really hold those knowledge keepers very, very close to our hearts because there's very few left. And um, when I talk about knowledge keepers, we could talk about language, we could talk about um, ribbon work, we could talk about songs, we could talk about ceremonies, um, naming ceremonies, I mean, we could go on and on. And the reality is that um, the Omaha people were uh, very much um, heavily colonized through the Allotment Act, um, which even prior to the Allotment Act, 30 years prior, when we signed our treaty, allotment was built into our treaty. Oops. <laughs> so in the, in the treaty, um, land was already being divided up and there's a relationship between um, land, um, indigenous women, agency, um, patriarchy. Like, there's a relationship between all of these things, agriculture. I mean, there's just, it's all interconnected. And so when, um, when all of this trauma was happening, we, we tended to generationally try to assimilate um, mm -hmm. And so some families assimilated more than others, and, um, and so knowledge was lost. So just trying to, to give a baseline for us to understand that not every family has the ability um, to have family patterns. Not every family has the ability to go to an elder and ask for um, them to teach them, right? So in my family specifically, my grandmother, um, I'm, I'm the oldest grandchild in my family. There's, um, there's eight in my family specifically. And um, as the oldest, I was very, very close to my grandmother um, and had the responsibility of, of caretaking later on in her life. And so she would share memories with me, experiences with me. Um, and that allowed me to, she was not, um, she sewed a lot, but she was not someone who had ribbon work. Ribbon work was for women who had um, a lot of times the ability to have that, right? So she grew up in a time of the depression on the reservation um, when they would sell white walnuts to white people that would, you know, drive on the reservations to look at Indians for the day. And they didn't have money and they didn't have resources. And so um, that was not something that was passed down in my family. My grandmother's um, mother also died when she was 10 years old and she was then sent to boarding school at um, what's now known as Haskell but then was known as the Indian boarding school in uh, Lawrence Kansas and so um, for me specifically in my family line that was um, something that was not there and so I sought out knowledge keepers in our community I took food baskets I um, sat in every time I saw a session that was being done and I asked a lot of questions and so um, I, I'm very um, thankful to the teachers that I had. And sometimes those teachers weren't even Omaha. They would have been other tribal um, women who, who practiced the technique and may have shown me tricks of the trade and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a few things out of that. I'm so interested in the, the response to the to historical colonial forces that sort of embedded in this practice um 
it seems like it's very much a process of reclamation, of healing from trauma, and also activism, which we've talked about this, and that will come up again. You can talk about what it means to be an activist or not. Um, how does that relate to um, seed gathering, seed exchanges, to other forms of um, reclamation, sovereignty that you're working on or that you're also seeing indigenous people working on um, that sort of connect creative work to food practices, to um, ceremony, to other ways of healing. Right. Um, so, right, this is all an individual journey um, for everyone, right? There's an individual journey for healing and reclamation, I think, is a really beautiful way of, of saying that. Um, some even call it rematriation, right? Um, a lot of times the, the history books and the um, ethnographers and anthropologists didn't document the story of our women. Um, they didn't see us as, um, I guess, um, well, I, I tend to think it was very thought out and methodical <laughs> as to why they didn't tell our women's stories because our women had an incredible amount of agency. Um, and they were actually the base of, of the economy. And when you look at traditional agriculture, I um, mean, of course, the corn, beans, and squash, but we also had melons and we had um, um, all of, you know, so many different types of seeds that we were growing um, intentionally. And then you have the, um, what people call foraging or, um, you know, the, the food and the medicines that grow naturally. Um, that people would go out and seek. So women were surrounded with these beautiful flowers and plants and medicines and um, they were relatives, you know, they, they were, you had a relationship with them. Um, mm -hmm. It was more than just, um, oh, look at that pretty flower, I'm gonna make, put that on my skirt. A lot of times women had, um, they held those medicines in their bundles that they put on their skirts. And we have to think too that, you know, now I have, you know, five or six ribbon work skirts. Women usually only had one or two um, traditionally. So the skirt that you had was constantly being added to or the blanket you had was constantly being added to. So um, I think that, um, I'm just trying to go back to your, to your question here. Um, this idea too, between the seeds, um, we're looking at women as being the primary ones who were the seed keepers. And that story has been completely left out because we have this, um, this mainstream story of agriculture being a white man and a plow and a cow or a horse and you know this idea of agriculture being in complete contrast to traditional indigenous agriculture where women were the seed carriers. We waited to plant until um, the moon when we plant in May. We waited for the moon cycles to plant. That's why our Omaha women have all of these moon names. Um, we waited for the flood to come on the Missouri River. You know, the Missouri River Agricultural Basin is one of the most fertile in the, in the world. And when the flood receded, it's, it was almost like a woman's moon cycle and fertility cycle. So when the, when the flood receded, it left the most fertile land. And that's when we planted our crops. Um, and those crop areas that women planted in were family-based, community-based, clan-based. Again, we're going back to this idea of kinship. And so they planted their crops as a community. So this is a time to laugh and talk and sing to your seeds and just engage as women. 
Um, and we planted in mounds. And that goes back to, you know, even the stories of um, when we received one version of corn um, and the buffalo being in the four directions and left the mounds and out of that mound grew the corn. But there's no talk of the women in that story at all. And when you look at um, my, so my youngest daughter is 16 and, and a couple of years ago we planted and I had her plant with me that were carrying seeds inside and in her mind she could make that relationship between a woman's belly carrying a child and that's exactly the relationship you have the water which your belly's full of water you have the moon which controls the tide and can make women go into labor so all of this is interconnected into our female teachings and our women's role in the community and then when you look at the trade networks that were based on agricultural economy, women were really at the core of those trade networks. They may not have been the ones that were actually doing the trade negotiations, right? That may have been a male's realm, but we have to remember that there were um, powerful female realms as well, um, and duties and responsibilities and female agency. And so, um, but we I, I guess we can get to this idea of rematriation and matriarchy too, where we hear this idea um, when we go back to this more European model of farming and patriarchy, right? Where land is passed from um, male to male in the family, the male owned the woman and the children. And that's what happened essentially in the allotment act, right? Is they handed out to a male head of household um, who then owned the wife and the children and Omaha women were like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> You know, and in some more traditional families, this idea of the home being the woman's is still um, practiced, it, as in our home. Um, the seeds that I take care of, planting those traditional seeds, meeting other people who do and love the same thing. We're seeing this reclamation of indigenous women taking on indigenous female crafts. Um, I, I hate calling them crafts, but I would say female traditional knowledge, like sewing, applique, like um, beading. Um, traditional forms, right? Um, or even doing tanning hides or um, all of these beautiful ways of being that we had um, and reclaiming those as, I mean, I, I, they are art forms, but it's hard for me to see that because it, it's so much more than an art form, right? There's ceremony that goes to it. There's this love and this complete sense of identity that goes with it. So, um, and I think traditional ecological knowledge is kind of, um, tying into that a little bit. So I guess that's how I connect um, seeds, the agriculture with ribbon work, um, but it's also more a, a, just a way of life and a way of being. Um, there was the, um, the Woodlands Food Summit or the Great Lakes Food Summit that happened last year um, out in um, Pokagon, Michigan, and the year before it was in Meskwaki, um, the settlement here in Iowa. And what an amazing way to talk about even, um, you know, that when we talk about healing and recovery too. So there's things that we ate like squirrel soup when there wasn't food around or things that we ate like starvation foods, like um, milkweed soup that we remember people eating or making. Um, and there's feelings that go along with that to a lot of, um, a lot of elders that may remember what it was like not to have food and to have to eat those specific foods. Um, and it's, but it's reclaiming those and being so thankful that our grandmothers knew how to make those foods because they knew how to keep us alive. They knew how to keep us 
going as a community, those grandmothers that were the backbones um, of survival, um, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, and for our people, we were, you know, reduced in population by 95%. I mean, we went from 10,000 to 333 people. We lost families, we lost clans, we lost um, incredible knowledge. And so um, we're, we are survivors because of those grandmothers who, who have carried, uh, carried that beautiful knowledge of the plants and those medicines. So reclaiming those, reusing those, reintroducing those can be a little bit challenging, um, but also uh, very rewarding. Um, I wouldn't have known about the Great Lakes Food Summit if I didn't have, um, if I didn't have social media, because that's how it was shared was on Facebook. Um, but then there's some things you can't learn on social media, which may also be the generational part, right? Is um, young people just like, oh, this is how I go harvest licorice root. And I'm just gonna go out and do it because I read it on, or I saw it on YouTube. And um, there's a process to plant harvesting, right? There's asking consent from the plant um, to, to have that relationship, offering tobacco, which shows the reciprocity, right? So we're consent-based people, we're, we have reciprocity, we practice that in our daily lives. So if someone gives us something, we gift them back. Um, there's the communication of, of the needs of the plant. What are you looking for the plant to do for you? What healing do you need from the plant? Because a lot of the plants can do a lot of different things. Um, and so that prayer is built into that connection to the plant. And then giving the plant back to the earth after you use it. You know, you don't throw it in the garbage. You don't just discard it. Um, you really make a relationship with that plant. And so that's something that's hard to teach through um, social media. Although I've recently seen Linda Black Elk do some YouTube videos where she talked just about that and said, you know, talk to the elders in your community about what harvesting looks like. But what happens when there isn't anyone with that knowledge in a community, right? Um, in addition to that, like finding the relationship with, um, we, when we talk about kinship and you, you think of the moon, the sun, the earth, um, the seven grandfathers and their teachings, you're looking at soil, water sources, seeds, foraging, all of those things for me, um, that story had to be, um, it's like a puzzle piece. It's like a puzzle, right? And I get these pieces here and there of knowledge. And then I had my grandmother that I could bring it to. And is this, is this make sense, grandma? Does this thought, um, because I still think, you know, kind of academically I, in Western ways. And I'm like, grandma, does this make sense? And, um, and she was there to tell me yes or no, you're way off track. Whereas now she's gone. And so I have to kind of make those, um, those thoughts or put the pieces together and string them together in my mind um, by myself now. Um, but I do often bounce ideas off of people um, that I respect and have a relationship with to make sure that, um, that I'm kind of going in the right direction. Um, and then there's also, you know, now we have podcasts. So there's um, uh, Wild Indigenous is one that I listen to a lot. I'm listening to a lot of Kim Tallbear's um, thoughts and commentary, um, who yeah, I know we both love, um, <laughs> and and other women that are um, that are out there. There's there's another one that I listen to too that I really like um, that shares a lot of the same um, types of, of thoughts. Um, but I I think that you know these um, 
oh, it's all our relations. That's another one. Um, but I look at, you know, how we have access to these support networks and these people that are like-minded. And so that helps when we're um, really fighting patriarchy, either in our communities or in general. Um, it helps to have these women who may not even be our own tribe that support us, understand us, um, and also lend to like critical information to these ideas that we're forming right now, because it's, it's not like we have the answers, right? These answers are always forming and coming back to us. And this is something that'll be passed down to our daughters. Um, they'll continue, but they're, they, they, I look at my 16 year old, I'm already like, you know, so much more than I, you know, as much as I do, if not more in your 16. So what is this going to look like, you know, when you're 43? That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all of that. I, I keep returning to the word art, <laughs> which I think is very much, um, you know, when you're talking about these extended networks and different ways of learning and of knowing um, that are related to an, you know, a personal independent journey, but also in watching and listening uh, different uh, generations, older generations. I feel like the word you know, art can be a very settler colonial orientation toward making and creativity that sort of idealizes the individual um, and working for an arts institution and with a lot of arts institutions in Omaha um, and in the past in, in DC and Minneapolis. Um, you know, I always struggle with this and I'm wondering how can arts institutions support the efforts that you're talking about, you know, um, revitalization efforts, um, healing efforts, uh, support women, indigenous women, um, who are working towards these practices that are part of a much bigger way of, of knowing and existing within the world beyond this sort of like narrowly defined you know, what is an art? Because from what you've said about applique work, it is not just applique work, you know, it's everything. Um, so yeah, I'd just love to get your take on how institutions can support that work. Well, um, when, I, when I think of not just with art, but this idea of museums, right? And um, what museums contain. Museums often were tied to, um, to institutions of higher education um, that were founded shortly after statehood here in the Midwest. And um, even so that the land that they're, they're based on was um, treaty land. Um, so when I, I think about institutions like that, I think about my process with, um, with repatriation of my family's bundle. Um, that was taken to the museum by my great-grandfather, uh, Charlie Walker, and he asked for safekeeping, and it actually belonged to his uh, grandfather, and um, whose name was Wahlnagar Alan Walker, um, who was part of um, a group of people, a group of um, 12 Omaha families that were called the, um, the um, Council Fire, and they were resisting what was happening at that time, which was uh, the colonial um, process or the treaty signing, um, the allotment era, because they knew that allotment would be the beginning of dismantling our traditional governance systems, our clan networks, 
our secret societies, what they call, which were then were not secret societies. They were open societies. We didn't have to hide. Um, and they knew that that was what was coming, that this dismantling of our traditional Umaha um, kinship systems and way of life was going to come with allotment. And so I think about, um, you know, when my grandfather took the bundle, it was still illegal to sing our songs and practice our way of life. And, and he didn't, um, he put it there, as he said, for safekeeping. He didn't say it, it was theirs forever. And my journey, and I didn't go looking for this. Um, I heard about it my whole life from our family members. I heard about it. I heard people say, you should go get it. You should go get it. Um, and I was like, no, why, why would I <laughs> even um, in my, and so I, um, I didn't go looking for it. And I, the woman who, I was looking for something else. Um, I was actually looking for a white otter, which is a Medewian or um, used in our um, Medewian ceremonies. And I was looking for it to see if the shell was still in it. Um, and it was actually in Denver, but what the woman at the museum said is, well, let me send you a list of everything that we have that we don't put on the website. And she sends me these card catalog lists of everything they have. And the first one on there said Alan Walker and Charles Walker. Wow. And so that was, yeah, that was my, I mean, I know my family tree very well. So I knew that was, um, that was our families. And when I asked to see it, they were very open about going there and, and seeing it. Um, and we smudged it off and it was very powerful. And then I asked if I could take it with me to ceremonies to get more guidance. And for that, so I said, okay, well, here's my official letter of repatriation. <laughs> and I know Nanbra very well. Um, and I, I asked to repatriate it based on family lineage and showed my, my family lineage. And um, what that caused is something I did not expect, which was a, a great deal of opposition by certain men um, of power in the community um, that attacked uh, myself um, and used it to um, try and attack even my, my family members and our blood quantum. And so it became very personal um, for me. And I, part of this healing process, right, or what people call decolonizing, um, was realizing that my enrollment mattered, my enrollment number mattered less to me than um, a, a family bundle being returned, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this idea of what it means to be Umaha and um, what those original teachings that we received from the creator were. And so um, we went through and eventually brought it home. Um, the bundle went to ceremonies with me in our Medellin Lodge during spring ceremonies. It was opened um, and, and we care for it in our home and feast it and um, do things that are appropriate. And so I think about... Um, the way that the museum, uh, the tribe, um, the tribal council actually fought me on it, and we had to test to go each go to the uh, museum and testify as to why we thought it should or should not come home. Um, and the museum did a really great, fair, and just due process, um, mm -hmm. and followed NAGPRA laws, and um, and the bundle came home to us. So for me, that was um, it was scary. It was the first time it was done. Um, in our tribe where it was actually brought home to a family or a person, uh, a family member, and not repatriated to the tribe as a whole. 
okay. um, which the sacred pole, you know, came back in the nineties, but still um, is physically down at the museum in Nebraska. So I, um, I see that that also is a process of healing, um, looking at what is in these museums, what they possess, how did they gain access to them? Mm -hmm. Were they stolen? Were they bought? Were they sold? Were they, you know, what is this? Um, because when we talked even about a skirt, right? My daughter's skirt having all of this um, memory already in her, all of these prayers in her, she's, she's gone through the Medellin Lodge in this skirt. Um, and so the skirt having its, its own sense of spirit. Um, and then, you know, people thinking, oh, it's just a blanket that's in a museum, or it's just some moccasins in the museum, but where did those moccasins travel? Where did they go? Who did they belong to? Um, you know, I, I think that there's a better idea of that now. Um, and there's certain people, which I'm finding to be women specifically, that understand this connection. Um, because it's the women who make a lot of these things, right? Women made moccasins for their partners, for their children, for their relatives. Women were the ones tanning the hides, making the leggings, making their, you know, the clothes for their men. Um, and so, and their, their, you know, daughters and sons. But um, these are traditionally women's practices. And so um, reclaiming those um, does come in line with, healing and institutions and how they work having institutions even acknowledge women's practices as an art form mm -hmm. um, I think is powerful um, because even though our, our art is wearable our art is like is usable art <laughs> um, it's still an art form it, it's still a, a form of value and significance and um, and so having that acknowledged I think is is very important um, as we go back and we heal and gain more understanding, we can put together a, a bigger picture of what the community looked like. Um, and to me, that goes directly into nation building as well, because nation building is essentially creating a, a tribal nation, not just a tribe, um, but going back to being a, a nation. And to do that, we have to understand uh, and pull together as much cultural knowledge and understanding as possible. And pre-colonial cultural knowledge as possible, um, which um, means a lot of times that we are dismantling these patriarchal ideas that people call traditional. Um, and as I, I, I don't know if I explained before, but when we talk about these patriarchal ideas, um, patriarchy and matriarchy are not synonymous. You know, they're not equal. So patri patriarchy obviously is male dominated. Um, women have very little agency, very little voice. Um, but with matriarchy, we aren't talking about dominating men. You know, most of the women I know, we love our men. We love our sons. Um, matriarchy is about this idea of um, life, whether that life be life that we carry in our wombs, whether that be our sister's children, which are our children, whether that be seeds that we carry or creation, water, the spirits that live in the water, all of that, all of the forms of life and the spirits around us are about the continuation of our people into the future. That is matriarchy. And if we create food systems that sustain our people and allow us to live and create beautiful things, then that's a good life. Mm -hmm. That's such a, it's such a huge contribution. And I think, that was such a beautiful explanation of, of matriarchy. And I think it 
segues well into the last question, um, which is what are the next steps? And you've talked about what the sort of work you're doing within your own family is, and how does that translate to a broader community level and to even a policy level when we're talking about the very specific ecological challenges that this region is facing due to colonial policy um, that communities on the reservation are facing or within urban spaces are facing. What are the, the next steps for you? Yeah, so I don't know if they're next steps. It's like stuff's always happening, right? Um, so interconnected with the work that we do as, as Medellin women is we pray for and take care of water um, as our, our grandmothers, great-grandmothers did um, along the Missouri River. And so when, I, um, when you, you talk about policy or if people use the word activism, um, that feeds into uh, advocacy is I guess the word that I would use again, is that if we have the ability to advocate for those who have no voice, we have to do it, right? And the water um, can't speak for itself right now, although she's clearly resisting by flooding. <laughs> and going back to our traditional path before Pick Sloan. Um, what I, I think what people have to realize, I guess, first with policy is that there has been, you know, generational historical U.S. policies that have targeted specifically um, Indigenous people here in America and targeted us in, in very harmful ways. And one of those ways was through the Pick Sloan Damming Project that um, happened in, um, into the 40s and 50s. And what, what it did is it impacted um, over 20 tribal communities whose um, treaty boundary was the Missouri River. Some of those communities like um, up north in, in North Dakota were completely flooded, like I think Amanda and Hadatsa. Um, they were completely flooded and still underwater now. With us, they literally moved the river into um, Iowa. And so we lost um, thousands of acres, um, tens of thousands of acres of land. Um, and that was intentional, you know, that wasn't, um, that wasn't done by mistake. And, and the goal was to prevent areas like Sioux City from flooding, um, where, you know, you had a down bottom in Sioux City and where the, a lot of the agricultural stuff was going on. So we lost um, acres of land, of course, but you also lost uh, ceremonial sites. You lost women's prayer sites um, where the full moon ceremonies were done. My grandmother would tell me about specific places where the women would gather and pray and do ceremony and sing. Um, she said sing to dinosaurs is what she would say that, that lived in the caves, but I, I know what those, that was kind of code words for water spirits. Um, so when we look at what's happening with the water now and how that is, or the KXL pipeline or oil pipelines that are going through, you know, pipelines are nothing new to Indian country. They're nothing new to our communities. Um, but what we're acknowledging now, I think on a more collective level, not all indigenous people agree with uh, preventing pipelines, but I think what we're seeing more collectively is this understanding of the impact that these pipelines have um, not just on the um, ecological base of our lands, but on the health of our people. Um, they have an impact on the people that are coming into our communities and what they're carrying with us. So right now, you know, are the people going in to build KXL? Are they contaminated with um, COVID-19? Are they bringing that into the communities? Um, 
so that's uh, definitely an issue. And, and of course, we were at Standing Rock um, for ceremony um, with our, our lodge members. We went up four different times, and two of those times were specifically for ceremony. Um, and also, I organized um, resistance at the Army Corps of Engineers in Omaha, Nebraska, which is the ACE that oversaw um, TransCanada and, and that whole um, oil pipeline stuff that went on. <laughs> so, um, and the idea to organize was to introduce what the most important part to me in organizing those um, actions is what they call them at ACE was to have our Omaha people understand um, the value of the river mm -hmm. and to understand the ceremonial value of the river and also to understand that we can stand up and not to be afraid. Um, and so we brought the big drum down, singers down, um, and we, it also allows us to create this um, sense of identity too, right, um, of community, um, saying that, no, this isn't okay, um, and this is going to impact us, and it's going to impact our children, just like the Pick Sloan Damming Project impacted generations of our people, and our women, <laughs> and our, our, um, our garden plots. And feeding into that, we have, um, you know, this new idea of what people call missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, we know that our women have been targeted since contact. This is nothing new. It's been happening forever. But as um, Indigenous women, this is nothing new. Our grandmothers were having the same conversations at their, at their kitchen tables about our women. Are they safe? Where are they experiencing harm? Um, how, how can we prevent them from, from being harmed? Um, both in urban areas, um, but also um, border towns. Um, it, it's really common. And then also in the community, um, by community members, by our own. And that's a whole other area that I think we're just looking at addressing is domestic violence in our communities and what that looks like. And, um, and that's really hard because that's taking it from non-Indigenous people um, doing something that we're, we're comfortable or familiar with because they've been doing it for so long and now saying, um, we're doing it to ourselves, our own are doing it. And what does that look like? Why? And how do we heal from that? Um, how do we prevent that? So those prevention efforts look very different than prevention efforts from uh, non-Indigenous people harming our women. Um, but then we just look at the over-sexualization of Native women, you know, Pocahontas, the whole like hottie, Pocahontas costumes and all of those things that, um, that lend to this idea of um, Native women being not human um, and dehumanizing, you know, a group of people is the first way that you um, can make it okay to harm them, right? Or they're all drunks, they're all alcoholics, you know, all of these stereotypes that Native women have as drunk whores, essentially. I mean, that's the, what the word squaw, you know, where that comes from. And um, so, you know, and that being so, that word being so commonly accepted too, right? That it was just, um, people were able to use it like nothing. Um, so I, you know, the issues of, in terms of policy with missing and murdered Indigenous women is something I, I worked with actually across the boundaries, um, working with other women who are like-minded, who are strong, who are, um, and all of this to them is also rooted in food sovereignty and reclamation of, and re, you know, just building our, our bundles. Um, so this isn't, um, you know, I don't think I'm unique. I think this is something I see a lot of our women doing. Um, other policy 
work I think is is around the communities and how food sovereignty can um, help our communities long term, especially with what's going on right now. Right, like our reservations are usually in food deserts, and so when we look at access to food, we're we're talking about having to come into these urban areas or cities, and is that always safe? Um, and then you know, what can we be doing within our communities to reestablish these uh, food systems? Um, and I, I have seen some pretty cool stuff done even with um, like the um, government food distribution that's done, you know, putting in um, blue corn meal or giving out wild rice or buffalo meat, um, deer meat, seeing that happen. I know that um, the Winnebago tribe recently did a buffalo kill and distributed meat to its tribal members, which is a really beautiful thing. Um, I've seen the Meskwaki do some uh, beautiful work. Shelly Buffalo's amazing. Um, and the work that she's doing with the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative, where they feed their elders traditional foods that they grow um, and help do gardens. Um, so I, I, see, um, I see it happening in all of these different ways, but it, it just, it takes somebody that's, um, somebody really special to do that in the community. So for me, I'm not, um, you know, ready to lead like a, a, a big food initiative or anything like that. We keep it in our garden and our family and, um, and do that right now because my work is in, in higher education um, with young people. But having these conversations with my students is so awesome because I see how, um, you know, in my generation, I had to get rid of a lot of fear of judgment if I'm not, um, if I was like, not like too Indian, I guess would be the word. Um, and in academia, you know, what that looked like, you had to be a certain way to be successful within academia. and um, you know, it would be fearful to even use my language or to learn my language because, or, or to definitely use it, right, uh, around non-Native people. Um, and overcoming those fears that I see this younger generation doesn't, isn't afraid. Um, they are ready to wear their ribbon skirts in public. They are ready to, um, to learn how to make them. They're ready to use their language in every way they can. Um, they're ready to build gardens and um, feed elders, and they're just amazing. And so um, one thing that we're working on um, at the University of South Dakota is I'm um, working with Megan Jarko in the sustainability program, and we're um, discussing very preliminary ideas of how we can use um, traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK, um, and how we can build that into the sustainability program. Would that look like a certificate? Would it be a major? Um, what would that look like? And so for me, that's, um, if we can find out a way that I can, you know, work in indigenous women's experience, agriculture, all of this, um, I would love to look at a PhD in that. So um, trying to offer our majors that our students can go back to their communities to rebuild their communities and that they aren't just majors like business. Mm -hmm. The more mainstream majors like you know business business degree and then um, go into a more colonial model um, but this is something where our students can take back um, our own knowledge and apply it as it's as it um, 
fits their community. Um, because our students can learn their language now, you know, at these larger institutions. Um, although I don't feel that they should be charged for it, but they can <laughs> relearn their language. Um, and it's just, it's super awesome. And for my work, being able to create that space for students to be themselves and to have these conversations, to talk about nation building, introduce these ideas is, um, is awesome. And then to see them go on to do policy work. Um, yes, whether that be in public health or um, in the arts, we have students doing work in the arts. Um, and to see them as all of these little seeds that are going out there and going to um, continue to build our nations and make our people strong and healthy, to me, that's um, pretty awesome stuff. Yeah, that's so beautiful. It's so wonderful to hear about uh, the work that's changing at universities, especially and how young people, I just think that generation um, has such motivation and is so bright and is doing wonderful things. So it's, it's really wonderful that you're mentoring them and just sharing your experiences with your community and with, with us <laughs> here at Amplify and with the, the listeners to, to this podcast. Um, that was a wonderful conversation. I think we have to wrap it up here. I feel like I could ask 10 more questions or more, but we'll continue to talk. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing, hearing about your work in the coming months and years and good luck. You said May is when you finish your MA program. Yep. That's when I'm, I'm all done. No commencement this year, but everyone will stay safe and, um, and that's it. So we have an amazing cohort model and I just can't give the MTAG program at UMD enough love for creating this program that is just so specific to tribal communities and their needs. So pretty awesome stuff. That's awesome. Well, congrats in advance. You know, good luck in these last couple of weeks and uh, stay healthy, stay well, take care and your family too during this, you know, time. Um, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thank you. Take care. Yep. Yeah.